Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The tight end of politics podcasts, just offensive enough to get your attention. Oh, you got that. Good. I'm Ros Taylor. <laughs> on today's show, Labour finally, finally abandoned the pledge to spend $28 billion on the Green Prosperity Plan. How troubled are we at the U-turn? And will it trouble voters? Schools are literally falling down, but that's not the only problem they're facing. What is Labour promising to do about it? We're joined by education journalist Charlotte Santry in the second half of the episode. Let's meet the panel. First up, it's journalist and housing expert Hannah Fern. Hi, Hannah. Hello. Last month, a woman in Nottingham went to A&E and passed out under her coat after waiting more than seven hours to see a doctor. She'd had a brain hemorrhage and she died in intensive care. What do the stats say about A&E waits now? There's some really interesting stats out this week and the Lib Dems have dug them up. Um, Between February last year, uh, 2023, and January this year, 1.5 million patients in England waited more than 12 hours um, to be admitted from A&E. And that's almost uh, 6,000 a day. And one in 10 patients now basically are waiting um, more 12 hours or more, often more. Uh, And some FOI requests were, were put in and found that 48 warnings from coroners on emergency care capacity were issued during that same period. And we know that long waits for emergency care can cause significant harm, even death, in this case death. Coroners obviously can't always directly link a death to a wait because it's more complex than that. But the fact that they're issuing these warnings suggests that even where they can't say it, they have that hunch that it's definitely linked. So really bleak figures on that and can't see it getting any better in the coming months. And is it really bad across the board or are there certain places that are much worse than others? There are some places that are worse than others. um, But the important thing, I think, is that the averages uh, are are, are really significant because when when you think about the state of the NHS, the point is it's accessible wherever you are, um, free at the point of need. And if you if you just are taking a, a, a risk, essentially, depending on which hospital you happen to be near um it's it's a really dangerous situation you simply can't rely on the service as we could maybe even 18 months or two years ago so yeah we thought it was bad then yeah, yeah. But it's worse now and we're joined by journalist and author of behind closed doors the secret life of london private members clubs seth tevos hello seth hello hello trump says he'll encourage putin to attack nato members who aren't paying enough towards the alliance why does he hate europe Trump has a very dog-eat-dog view of the world, you know, bullies dominating the weak and so on. And um, his view of Europe is a very transactional one. I don't think he actually hates Europe proactively. I think that would credit far too much attention for Europe in his mind. But it is a pawn, as far as he's convinced, and it's down to what can he get out of it. Um, I think usually if people say, let's look at the context of this, they mean it's not as bad as you think looking up close. With Trump, it really is as bad. But what he was actually saying was, I would encourage them whilst running this effectively as a protection racket. And that's Trump's view of NATO. And what was the real purpose of the Tucker Carlson interview with Putin? Less for Putin, because I know what his purpose was. But what was Tucker Carlson's purpose? I think Tucker Carlson's been on an odd journey looking for a renewed relevance since you know Fox News let him go a year ago from this very high-profile post. Um, there's still never been an official explanation as to why he's left. I'm not suggesting that he's broke, but he's certainly less well-off than he would have been on this very lucrative contract. And so, yes, there, there's certainly an element of, you know, he was spotted at the Bolshoi Ballet in box seats and um, enjoying the hospitality of the regime in a nice hotel. But um, he does, well, the regime suggested he'd been paid quite 
handsomely. They're, they're odd about that because they very often will try and abuse the very people who are in their pocket as sort of a way of discrediting them and making you doubt who to believe, all of these sorts of things. But it's quite believable that he may have had a reasonable fee for this. Interesting. There was a collective groan from a lot of Labour Party supporters last week as Keir Starmer finally, finally axed that £28 he'd been promising for a green prosperity plan. It's the Conservatives' fault, he said, for trashing the economy. Ed Miliband has swallowed his rage and most of the party is trying to suck it up and repeat fiscal prudence to themselves. How much does this U-turn matter? Is the real risk that when voters ask what would change under Labour, there's no answer? Hannah... What won't now happen because we won't have 28 billion? Well, we don't know the full detail because it was never set out in significant detail. But we do know one thing, um, which is the party's home insulation scheme. That was due to be huge. Um, They were going to be spending six billion a year uh, insulating, I think, 19 million homes over a decade. Now it's only six billion over the course of a parliament. Uh, That is a massive problem for the country. But frankly, that was a completely unachievable promise anyway. So I think there's been an element of prudence here, not just fiscal prudence, but practicality. Like it, It would just be impossible to do that. There are lots of reasons why the infrastructure isn't in place. The appetite isn't there. Um, housing associations aren't even building properly insulated homes, let alone, you know, being in, in place to retrofit the, the ones they have. So I think that's just honesty. But All of the things that still stand, Great British Energy, uh, the zero carbon electricity by 2030 promise, Starmer still commits to all that. He says that's all still achievable, you know, and we don't know whether that's true or not because the detail of how to get there was never actually set out. It wasn't exactly unexpected. There'd been rumours that there would be a U-turn for weeks. Did that lessen the impact of it? Had we been softened up or did it just make Labour look indecisive, like they couldn't make up their minds? To be honest, I think it depends on your initial view of the policy and the party. So, I mean, I personally think it lessened the impact. We talked about this seven times already is how it felt when it finally, uh, the plug was pulled. But, you know, not that many people follow that as closely as as we do and maybe our, our listeners do. Starmer is still committed to the vision. I do believe that truly, but I I think that people will misread this announcement, this U-turn as a rolling back from the vision. They don't hear the second part of the sentence. They hear we're not doing 28 billion anymore. And what they hear is that we're doing zero, which which is not the case. But the problem with this protracted discussion is that, yeah, there's less clarity, I think, than there was. Seth, there's an assumption, especially on the left, that Labour needs a big offer to the public to win the election. Do they? I differentiate between the short term and the long term, because if we're just looking at this purely short termist, uh, you can actually see how there's every reason to go into an election being as vague as possible and as non-committal as possible. And the logical extension of that is to never have any policies ever. Um, the problem is, that doesn't work in the long term. Uh, Actually winning an election is the easy part. Governing and holding together your coalition of voters to stay in power for a long period of time to see through your policies, that's the really hard part. Um, When times are quite good, it's very easy for your offer to voters to be a very vague philosophical one. When there's a major crisis, such as on all fronts right now, 
you really do need something big and comprehensive. I mean, the, the analogy I draw up actually is of the 1930s, where democracy was under threat the world over. And I would contrast the British experience and the American experience. The British experience was life carries on largely as usual with some cuts to public services to try and tighten our belts and make the sums work. Uh, the result of that was overwhelming dissatisfaction, which expressed itself, you know, a decade later in a real shift. Um, in the US, on the other hand, you look at FDR and you look at a comprehensive government program that meant doing economics in a very different way. And I think we're much closer to that kind of scenario now where that's really called for if if the next government's to keep its support. Yeah, I mean, if you look at 1945, when there was a big offer on the table, and that's when Labour got in, the contrast is very, very mm. great, isn't it? Yeah. Hannah, nonetheless, you're not too fussed about this. Why? I'm not. Obviously, it goes without saying that I am fussed about the green agenda and climate change, and, and these are absolutely crucial commitments in terms of the policy-level detail. But the £28 billion figure, I can't get bothered about it. And the reason is that it was just a pointless round number. The Tories tried really hard to pin it this last week to their actual commitments, but that, but it never was because the commitments were never fleshed out. So actually, in my view, not that much has been lost. And we're actually hearing some honesty in public policy for once. Instead of just making some grand commitments, going into office on a promise that you know you can't deliver and then rolling back once you've been given the, the mandate... There's some honesty about it. And also, I think it's the least important of all the rollbacks we've had from Keir Starmer. He has done a lot of flip-flopping. Let's not, you know, pretend otherwise. But for me, things like the second child benefit limit, the wealth tax, even at a stretch, nationalising the railway. I think they were all much more significant promises in terms of real lives now than this random 28 billion figure, which was just sounded brilliant, but wasn't attached to the specifics. So... Yeah, I, I I can't get fussed. But which got a lot less attention. I think a lot of people probably still assume that Labour wants to renationalise the railways. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm astonished that people aren't talking about the benefit limit all the time. It's the, it's one of the leading causes of child poverty in this country at the moment. Yeah. And, and Labour are f apparently fine with that. That's much more troubling. The Greens are delighted about this. It's what they were waiting for because they always said Labour wasn't committed to the environment and now they think they've got that proof. Is there a risk for Labour that votes could go the Greens' way in constituencies that the party needs to win? They're quite ambitious this time. They've got three or four constituencies that they seriously think they yeah. can win. Um, my view is no, I don't think it does matter, but I completely understand the Greens' excitement about that and why they're really going for it and using it as an opportunity. I don't think it's really going to split the vote in any meaningful way in two, for two reasons, really. The areas that the Greens have a real chance in and are a genuine second force to Labour are areas like Dulwich and West Norwood in London. The vote there is so strongly Labour that even if they lose 10,000 to the Greens, they're still not going to deliver a victory for themselves there. Um, and also, I think in swing areas, delicate areas, tactical voting will take precedence over everything else come, come this election. And either way, with both of those, and I, do, I suppose I say this with some regret, it's more than made up by the politically disengaged who are, I suppose, fiscally sort of centre-left maybe, but socially very conservative. People who have a sense that the Tories are in a state, there definitely needs to be a refresh, but don't have a strong view about why they want to support Labour. I think that they will actually be warmer to Keir Starmer for jettisoning the green crap, essentially. Now, I, you know, I don't agree with any of that, but I think it's a force in politics. 
Many, many Labour supporters uh, disagree with you there. I but know. Yeah, yeah. I have seen so much pushback this, this yeah, the last I know, few days. But, I that, but I may say, I think they're probably the Labour supporters we see a lot of on the social media around this podcast. And we probably agree with them all, but um, but it doesn't mean it's actually a, a political force that will change any swing constituencies, in my view. Yeah. Seth, Labour, as we were saying, does need to promise some kind of change, but it keeps foundering on the problem that the money isn't there. Mm. Rachel Reeves says she won't raise the big taxes. Only last week she promised not to hike corporation tax. And the party keeps boxing itself in, even with this big, big lead in the polls. Why? Um, essentially, what you're seeing is politics by opinion poll of not wanting to offend key groups of voters or people who could turn out to be key groups of voters at this juncture. Um, and no one wants to be the loose cannon who's accidentally lost Labour or is blamed for losing Labour the next election if that were to happen. Um, the problem with that line of argument is it um, the extension is that it makes a farce of democracy. The idea is that actually no voters are given any meaningful information to make an informed choice other than during a very brief four-week period once every five years. Um, And that's clearly not a way to do these things. There are other ways that Labour governments have delivered in the past. I mean, um, the Harold Wilson governments of the 1960s had exactly the same problem. They inherited a terrible economic situation. And they decided a couple of years in, um, let's just go big on social legislation which costs us nothing, but actually brings about massive seismic change to society. And actually, I take a slightly different view from Hannah, although I I do agree that this is not as big a deal as it may seem. My slightly more cynical take is that I wouldn't rule out Labour making a U-turn on the U-turn. The costs of that are negligible in the grand scheme of things. I mean, this is a drop in the ocean in terms of public um, spending. And actually, there are quite considerable benefits. You know, we see all the time, and we're getting it now ahead of next week's budget, people protesting because uh, something really important hasn't been funded. But how many people are going to say, how dare you fund extra environmental green energy, you know, for 28 billion? I think it's highly likely there will be a U-turn on the U-turn once you know you're actually looking at a downing street podium yep. speech um this is all a bit of kind of messing about before the election so the strategy is to underpromise and overdeliver yes yeah which i think is a brilliant strategy just like in any in any job <laughs> politicians have a horror of u turns the press and the opponent and their opponents seize on them and they use them as evidence of failure and indecision and so on but shouldn't we applaud politicians who look at what's going on around them and change their minds and are open about the fact that they've changed their minds, Hannah? I think yes and no. Yes, in principle, yes. It's obviously great when somebody makes policy based on actual evidence. <laughs> Happens so little in British politics. Um, so I do welcome that. The problem is when you do a lot of it. And the whole Thatcherite uh, you know, you turn if you want to, which is seen as kind of like the strength, the great strength of Thatcher and Thatcherism. I, it sounds just like belligerence to me. I would personally don't mind uh, a U-turn if it's based on facts. And the Tories do U-turn sometimes. Boris Johnson did it during the pandemic when uh, over Mar- Marcus Rashford, when he intervened to keep free school meals. Should he have got more credit for that then? No, because he didn't do that based on the evidence. He did that based on pressure from a celebrity who everybody loves, which is a very different thing. Mm. Um, so I don't think he deserves a round of applause for that one, even though it came to the right decision in the end. I mean, they had the evidence telling them that that was the wrong policy from the off, but they chose to ignore it until somebody well-loved got involved. Mm. <laughs> um, 
Seth, surely there are examples of moments when politicians should have U-turned and they didn't. I mean, going back to Margaret Thatcher, the poll tax in the late 80s would be one. The Iraq war might be another. Is there a way of doing a good U-turn? I think actually we've had some really good and bad examples of this recently. And those are coming out daily through the COVID inquiry. Um, Because you're feeling your way into a totally new area of policy. And you have to admit halfway through some of the things we've been doing as an article of faith just aren't working. You know, early on, they were pushing very heavily the idea that uh, it spread as a disease through surfaces. And just by cleaning lots of tabletops, you, you'd be magically immune. Um, if, if you want a really good historical example of this, I'd look at the Cuban Missile Crisis for the simple reason that um, John F. Kennedy's committees and subcommittees recorded all of their meetings without any of the participants bar one knowing that they were being recorded. And so we have a really good record of how a group of politicians and generals fixated on one policy idea, which is um, we're either going to invade Cuba or nuke Russia. Those are our (laughs) only two options. Gradually come around via processing the evidence to, no, those are terrible outcomes. Let's scope this in a different way. Was that Thatcher's Achilles heel in the end, that, you know, the whole ladies not for turning that Hannah mentioned, that she was seen as too intransigent? But I think she also became a caricature of herself. Because if you actually look at Margaret Thatcher, the politician, as an up-and-coming politician, for example, as education secretary, she's quite conciliatory. She's not the Thatcher that we remember from the late 80s. And even in her first term in government, I mean, it's, it's worth remembering that when it comes to the miners' strike of 84... The reason the government is able to win out over the miners is because they've been seeing that conflict coming. They've stockpiled enough coal in advance that they can basically starve out the miners during the whole of the strike. Earlier on, in her first term, it came very close to a strike and they conciliated and they actually bought out the miners because they realised we're not going to be able to win this one. And so that conciliatory Thatcher in her earlier years you don't see because she's almost playing to the gallery and playing to this self-parody. So we've established that Starmer's in a bit of a bind with how little he can really practically promise to do. Mm. What if a year into a Labour government, there's still not that much money because the economy isn't booming and there aren't big tax receipts. Britain still feels very broken. How is he going to keep his MPs on board? I don't think a year in is going to be a moment of dissent in the way that you describe Mm. And that's because, just imagine for this purposes of this discussion, that the polls stay as they are currently. You're looking at a large intake of new Labour MPs. Um, they are going to be enthused and feel part of this joint project. And even if they have their own concerns, that kind of sense of commitment to the project is going to be bigger at that point to keep their mouth shut. I think maybe after four years, if you've not seen very considerable change to the state of the country and, you know, policy agenda and so on, then maybe you have got a problem. But I think one year, he can probably get away with it. (laughs) But that's the problem. It's when you get to the three, four year point, where actually a lot of policies are still being rolled out at that stage. But most voters, quite reasonably, will say, well, I haven't seen any difference. Mm. And they may not see any difference for six or 10 years for that matter. But a lot of this comes down to being overly dependent on policy. And actually, so much of government is also about direction and is about what kind of principles you pursue, Mm. what kind of priorities you have. It's extraordinary how few governments are remembered for stuff that they introduce. I mean, I think the government of 1945 is the last government I can think of that said they would introduce some stuff. 
introduced the stuff and are more or less credited with it, although they're actually out of office within six years. Everyone else pretty much since. It's been a case of, you know, there there have been uh, wars that have come out, there have been global pandemics, there have been minor strikes, you know, you name it. These are external circumstances and they are remembered not for the stuff that was in their manifesto. They are remembered for the way that they reacted to those crises and reacted well or badly. And I, I groan whenever I hear about policies. I mean, as a policy journalist, I can't groan, but I, I take your point. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a dreadful shame that Blair's government, at first for two terms certainly, is overshadowed so entirely by Iraq because otherwise you really would see the kind of, you know, the sure start, the you know, so but, on and so on. You could talk about it for hours. Because it's not no the deeply thought through policies that are the things they're remembered for. It's the stuff that's made up yes. on the hoof. yeah. Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week, who's scoring and who's snoring. Hannah, who's your hero? Um, So my heroes, plural, of the week are the Uber and Deliveroo drivers who are going to be going on strike on Valentine's Day. Great choice of day. Obviously, nobody goes out anymore. Everyone's skint, but they might get a a takeaway for trying to make something special of the day. Um, They're on strike because the algorithm that sets their pay per job is so opaque. They often go out on a job and do not know how much they're going to earn for doing it. Um, And they regularly don't even earn the minimum wage. And there was a court case last year that basically prevented them from being seen as employees. So they, they aren't entitled to the minimum wage. Of course, they have the opportunity to earn a lot more than the minimum wage. That's you know, what the, those organisations would say. But it's um, it's a bit of a bust job. And they are all going out on strike on Valentine's Day. I hate Valentine's Day personally as well. So anything that scuppers it, <laughs> I'm always for it. So of the, of the many add-ons that Deliveroo now offer me whenever I use the app, the one I should go for is the tip the driver, yeah? Yeah, what you you're should, saying. yeah. Although I must admit, I don't always do it either. Everyone's in at the moment. How about your villain? My villain is Grant Shapps. Could be many days of the week that he is my villain, but today it's for this reason. He is making a completely unnecessary, entirely fabricated culture wars moment out of the MOD's commitment to diversity. It promised um, changes to the way background checks are performed for recruits from overseas. That mainly affects those who have a different racial background. And he's making it out like we're just giving a free pass to anyone to join the military because we want to see more black and brown faces in it. That is not the case at all. I have actually been somebody's referee for the MOD uh, security checks. Actually, it was for it was for the Foreign Office, but it's the same thing. The questions, I obviously can't go into any detail, but the kind of questions that they ask you are the kind of questions that discriminate by their very nature often against people from you know, non-traditional white middle-class backgrounds, bluntly. But it means that if you come from a non-traditional background, if you grew up in care, if you have perhaps a quite complicated family history, they're much, the answers that you give are very much less straightforward. And it's very important that that is understood and that people are not discriminated against because of, you know, they might be a perfect candidate, but have a complicated family history or something. The idea that he's turning this into a, oh, free pass for black and brown people from elsewhere makes me so fundamentally furious that he is my villain of not just the week, but probably the month or longer. Seth, how about you? Who's your hero? Um, well, I like to go for controversial heroes. So this week I'm going for Donald Trump's lawyers. <laughs> 
okay. on the grounds as well as being spectacularly unconvincing most of the cases that they've contested. We found out this week that they've charged him over $55 million in legal fees in the last year alone. Nice. You know, bearing in mind that even if Trump is as rich as he claims to be, his liquidity is not that great <laughs> and they'll still be billing him. Um, and my villain for this week um, is not Liz Truss at PopCon, the uh, popular conservatives conference um, the week before last, but her register of members' interest entry. Because um, having embraced the whole thing of, uh, you know, speaking out against Davos Man and all of these sorts of things, turns out that um, Liz Truss has just declared uh, free complimentary ski passes to Davos. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She went with the APPG for uh, my home country of Switzerland. Well, there we go. Well, it's hard to decide this week. It's always hard to decide. But on the basis that um, hypocrisy should always be called out, I think we'll go with Liz Truss's register of interest. And also, I, I know you're a close follower of the uh, register of members' interests, Seth, and I, I feel that that dedication ought to be rewarded as well. And so here, I think I think Uber drivers and uh, yeah. delivery drivers, Certainly. I think they deserve um, a, a, a shout out. And Good yes. luck to them. Schools might not be in quite as bad a state as A&E is, but the signals on the dashboard are pointing in the wrong direction. Attendance is still a huge problem, buildings are in a bad way, and it emerged this week that schools built under the private finance initiative are now struggling to pay their charges. What's got to change and what is Labour planning to do about it? Joining us to help answer those questions is Charlotte Santry, news editor at TES magazine, which used to be known as the Times Educational Supplement. Thanks for joining us, Charlotte. Thanks for having me along. Let's start with the PFI problems briefly, because it's very much in the news at the moment. In the 1990s, the government spotted a way to find the funds to rebuild schools. It locked them into 25 to 30 year contracts where schools have to pay maintenance costs to private companies. What problems is this causing now and why now? Well, it's really adding to schools' financial pressures. They're already under a lot of pressure. Um, Although the government recently did give a bit more money to schools, all that's going to do is take funding back to the levels it was in 2010. What's I think what's made it particularly bad um, more recently is the fact that inflation's been going up so much. So um, the costs that schools have to pay are linked to the retail price index. So last year, we were seeing kind of double digit increases. And the the difference that was making to school budgets, it was costing an extra kind of £100,000 a year. When you think how many teachers and staff that could potentially fund, that's a lot of money. And we've done some digging around in the past about this. And there are some like crazy things. So because of the way that the the costs are calculated, we've had schools that have been charged sort of £8,000 for a tap and £4,000 for a sink and, and things. Is PFI still being used to fund new school buildings? It's not that schools are being built now with new PFI contracts. It's just that the contracts are so long. The impact of them has got this hugely long tail. Um, and it's, yeah, so it's still affecting schools today. So one of the many ways in which Britain has changed in the last decade is that birth rates have gone down. They've fallen quite sharply in the last several years in particular. What does that mean for schools? It's really affecting particularly primary schools because primary, well, because all schools get funded for every pupil who attends them. There's a certain amount attached to each pupil. So um, because the fall in the birth rate has meant that fewer people are applying to primary school places in some areas and particularly places like London, which have already seen an exodus of families um, linked to, to other things like COVID. 
you're seeing schools which aren't attracting enough pupils um, to to make them sustainable. In a way, it's just as well that there are going to be fewer pupils because it's hard to recruit and retain teachers at the moment. Is that just about pay? Obviously, we had a teacher's strike last year or so, which has now been resolved. Or is teaching getting harder? It is partly about pay. I think you have to say, you know, like a lot of public sector workers, teachers' pay was restrained for a long period of time. And I think even the the starting salary of £30,000, which is one of the government's big pledges and which they have brought in, even that is not as competitive as it was when the idea was first brought in. So if you talk to most teachers, pay is definitely a reason for why they're leaving the profession. But it's often the biggest reason is workload. And that's not necessarily the kind of work that you necessarily associate with day-to-day teaching. It's not, we're not just talking about marking and lesson planning and things like that. It's often the more pastoral side. So because of the cost of living crisis and the impact that's having on poverty levels, that's sometimes spilling into the classroom in terms of behaviour, and then it creates safeguarding work for teachers, especially at more senior levels. Um, We're seeing um, all the mental health problems that children have got now and the the backlog of waiting lists. All all these things have happened at the same time as there have been a lot of cuts in the services around schools. So services which traditionally would have stepped in and filled some of those gaps, schools are having to fill themselves. The burden on teachers, both in terms of the amount of time that all that work takes and the kind of emotional toll as well, is something that a lot of teachers talk about. We should also mention as well, though, it's it's to do with um, lack of flexibility as well. If you compare them to other kind of professions, there's only a limit to how flexible you can be in a teaching job because ultimately you need to be in a classroom teaching children. So that's, I think, added to the, the pay and the pressure and the stress. And then you've got stress of inspection as well. All of those things are kind of coming together. Um, and we've definitely like, undoubtedly got a huge crisis. Yeah, people always used to say that, oh, teachers have such long holidays, but and as you've said at the moment, when most people can only go, only have to go into the office if they've got an office job three days a week now, it's yeah, I can see how teaching would seem a lot less attractive. So there's been a big change in how schools are run over the past two decades, and lots are now academies and part of multi-academy trusts outside local authority control. We've had quite a long period of that now. Is it long enough to see whether that's actually improved schools and ha- has it done so? It's a really difficult question to answer that because academisations happened at the same time as a lot of other changes in education. So it's hard to just pick that one aspect out, although it has, like you say, it's been a major part of policy, education policy. I think you'd have to say that structures in themselves don't really make changes. It's, you know, it's 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 all the other things that go alongside it. And f- fans of the academy system would probably say, well, it has led to improvements. It's meant that schools that were being managed by underperforming local authorities have been able to be moved away and placed in a kind of family of trusts and and that's been a help and they've been able to pool resources in the same way perhaps that local authorities could and people who aren't such fans of the academy system would say that um, that's not the case and there's still a lot of underperformance in the system but just that they're run by trusts instead of local authorities um, and that underperformance isn't always dealt with or sometimes it's dealt with inappropriately so it's it's really it's a really really difficult question to answer I'm not trying to get out of it um, but I, I, I think it's it's quite a difficult one to unpick. And one of the criticisms of from those people who aren't a fan of, of academies and, and, and um, especially multi-academy trusts say that the fact that there's no requirement to have parents on the board uh, and also that 
um, you know, teachers are actually paid less, but heads are paid more than those in, in local authority control is, is one of the, the problems. What, does that make any difference, do you think, in practical terms? Well, I think that there, yeah, there is a perception that there's a lack of accountability with academy trusts, or well, not so much the trust themselves, but with the system around them. And actually, a lot of people in the system themselves believe that it's not just parents, although parents are an important cohort, it's how teachers themselves um, and school leaders feel that the decisions that are being made around which school should be should sit with which trust, um, which multi-academy trust should be allowed to grow and which should shrink. The decision making around that is actually fairly opaque. So that's not necessarily a criticism made by people who are against the academy system, but it is probably a fair criticism made by quite a few people across the spectrum. Um, in terms of um, salaries, there are some absolutely eye-watering salaries. In the highest multi-academy trust leaders paid well, over 500,000 a year. I think it's 550,000 now. I mean, I'm, not, I'm no, no sort of apologist for huge salaries, but <laughs> you know that the argument that would be made is that um, the person doing that job is, is worth it and they've made a huge mm. impact on the children's you know, education of many children. Um, Still a lot of money, though, isn't it? The government initially wanted all uh, schools to join an, a MAT, a multi-academy trust, by 2030. Uh, let's just imagine in a world that doesn't exist that the Tories get back in again. Um, would that? Do you think that commitment is still there? Would, is that likely to ever happen? As a firm deadline, it doesn't seem particularly set in stone. That is the direction that the system seems to be moving in, in general. Um, and Labour hasn't really said anything that suggests that they're particularly going to change that. I, I can't see them coming in and making immediate structural changes. I don't think that's what their priorities are. So it may well happen kind of organically. I don't think I can't see anything pushing that target in particular. The government's story is that test scores in British schools have improved a lot since 2009 on comparison with international, uh, on, the, on the PISA international scores. Is that the whole story? Yeah. Well, the government likes to um, present the, the, often their international rankings. So there's, there's one called PEARLS, which is an acronym which I won't spell out, but basically it's reading tests in, in primary age children across the world. And we did really well in it in the most recent test. We came up to fourth in the world in, in reading. And then there's another one called PISA and that's secondary age. And I think that was more mixed. Um, but like with any study of that, that kind of study, there are lots of problems in the sampling. Overall, our schools have actually gone down. But it's just they've gone down by slightly less than a lot of other countries. So it's, it's hard to read too much into our performance from those tests. A lot of the people who have been putting forward pearls, for example, the reading test, um, as an example of where things are going right, point to the fact that phonics, for example, is really embedded in primary schools now in a way that it wasn't in the past. Um, there's a big focus on literacy. Um, and they might also point to just the curriculum in general being much more evidence-based, kind of research-led, you know, knowledge-rich um, is, is what it's called. So they would see that they would see those results as a sign of the success of those policies, and those were policies, of course, that Michael Gove championed in the early 2010s. <laughs> that were, those were very much his thing, and have been quite some of them quite unpopular with parents, especially the huge emphasis on grammar in late primary. We've been talking earlier in the podcast about the constraints Labour has put on itself, and so we know that their education offering is not, let's say, huge at the moment. What has it pledged to do for schools? 
Their Labour's actually come out with quite a lot of different policies, but they haven't gone into much detail. It's like in a lot of other areas, their education policies haven't been fully fleshed out yet. So um, the main headline grabbing announcement was on private school fees and how they're going to add a tax to, to those fees. And that seems like it's going to pay for an awful lot of things, including recruiting six and a half thousand more teachers. Um, we've asked repeatedly how they're planning to recruit these six and a half thousand teachers, but we haven't had a lot of detail yet. But they have given some examples of how they do that. So they want to um, give teachers who stay for the first two years of training of an incentive payment to stay. They want to give teachers a training entitlement, so to help with retention. But there's a whole range of other things. So there's reform of Ofsted. There's um, supervised toothbrushing. Um, there's there's a quite a very wide range of things, but um, some of them haven't quite been fleshed out yet. Do you buy the criticism uh, of the uh, fat on private school fees that Keir Starmer wants to bring, uh, bring in? I mean, the, the uh, argument made by the Tories is that it will kick a lot of people out of the private sector and overwhelm uh, state schools. Do you think that will happen? I don't know if the evidence totally backs that up. Um, I think there have been various um, pieces of research that have been used by both sides to suggest it would and wouldn't happen. Ultimately, it depends where the private schools pass on the full 20% to parents. And some of them might say that they would have to to stay afloat. And there is a very big range of private schools. They're not all Eton's. Um, but some of them almost certainly would pass it on. So, it, yeah, it's, it's, diff- it's very difficult to say, and it would probably affect different types of private school in different parts of the country in very different ways. There's a lot of criticism of Ofsted and Labour has promised to do away with the kind of single word verdict, either outstanding, good, needs improvement or uh, inadequate. What what effects is that going to have? Will it will it work? Will it improve teachers' mood? Um, and potentially, will it improve the whole culture around inspections? Well, it feels like it's inevitably going to happen. There's such a big momentum now to change those single word, single phrase judgments. And Labour said it's something it wants to do. Um, Sir Martin Oliver, the new uh, chief inspector of Ofsted, seems to be in favour of it. It's whether it's going to be useful information to parents. I think a lot of people would argue that at the moment, it's not particularly useful. It doesn't provide the right kind of detail or, or the kind of information that parents particularly need to when it comes to choosing a school. And that a lot of parents don't use that judgment when it comes to choosing a school. So whatever replaces it has to be has to be useful for parents and it has to be fair to teachers and heads. So I think that's a very difficult balance to strike. So, yeah, it just depends what kind of school card, what kind of report card they have in mind. Labour's also going to do a curriculum review, it says, which uh, potentially would mean slightly less curriculum because the criticism at the moment is that there's just too much in there. Do you have a feeling for what might fall by the wayside? Because it's very hard, isn't it, to kick things off the curriculum once they're there? Yeah, and there are these constant demands. It feels like every week some lobby group is asking for something else to be added to the curriculum, whether that's sign language or toothbrushing or, or financial literacy. Um, and I think teachers get very annoyed about it. it. There's only so much that you can fit into the school day. There are two main criticisms of the curriculum, I think. One is that it's very full and it's very fact-driven. And the other is that it's, although the government has said it wants the curriculum to be very broad and balanced, some of the incentives have worked in the opposite direction. So you've got, say, um, the EBAC performance measure, which basically measures schools on how many pupils are taking um English, math, science, history or geography, and a language. 
And you'll notice there aren't any art subjects in that list. And we've seen entry rates of, of art subjects at GCSE really plummet. And that's one of the things that Labour has said that they want to do, that they want to change that EBAC measure so that there is a creative subject as part of that list of part of that group of subjects. So the curriculum isn't necessarily going to become less demanding, although Labour have talked about it being perhaps more skills based. Um, so it's more probably a shift of emphasis. And, and perhaps if Labour's um, intentions are seen through, perhaps a, a genuinely more balanced curriculum. There's all these short-term pressures that we just talked about, but as an education journalist, you probably have a better idea than most of the kind of stuff that's coming down the tunnel that the rest of us haven't noticed yet. What's your sense of that? What 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 are people not getting that that is going to be a real problem in say five years time? Well, one area which it feels like it's a massive area and everyone's aware of it, but perhaps that's just being an education journalist. But it's the 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 pressure of special educational needs and disabilities and and the budgets, um, which are just just ridiculous. I mean, there's so many local authorities on the verge of bankruptcy because of the increased demand. I mean, so the education, health and care plans, which set out the statutory entitlement that you can can expect your child to receive, um, have gone up by about nearly 50%, I think, since 2019, like some huge amount. And at the same time, there's a huge backlog where people aren't getting those EHCPs back. And it means that schools are then having to try and provide the support and behaviour support and learning support without the funding that those plans bring. So the whole system is just not working. And I think even ministers have admitted it's not working. Um, there is a There are plans uh, underway to address that, but whether they're, whether they're actually going to address it um, is to you know the full extent that's needed is is a big big question yeah i agree it's absolutely huge i've just written a piece about this hasn't gone to press yet so i better not give the whole piece away or my editor might be angry but um yeah there's it's causing problems on two sides so first of all just as charlotte said there's no funding coming into school so they're having to deal with it all in the classroom but the reason is that local authorities because they're so cash strapped they're taking a refusal first approach so when someone applies for an ehcp that's this education care plan that charlotte mentioned for their child, um, the first answer is just no without a proper review. And then the parents, together with the school or, or, or a private educational psychologist or, or, or somebody, a doctor, someone supporting them, challenges that. And then it ends up in court. And then it costs so much more because it's costing the local authority a lot of money to run these court cases. But they've got something ridiculous like a 97% overturn rate. So these children really do need this care. It's not that people are just trying their hand. When I spoke to educational psychologists about this, their main concern was that this is often putting years on a child's development plan. So they are falling behind on skills that they should be getting to support to develop. And and you may never get that time back. Also, parents are really up in arms about it. The government has gone uh, for a huge drive on um, attendance rates at school. They're furious that so many people are keeping their kids out of school. They're blaming it on coughs and colds. It's really not that. The people who are vastly overrepresented in the in the lower attendance rates are children with with either diagnosed or some form of special educational needs or disabilities and often without an EHCP. So school is just not suiting them. And this is where the, the Tories have, have started actually fighting within themselves about it because there are MPs who see what's going in their constituency and they're seeing mums and dads having to stop working, i.e. become less economically active 
as a result. So they see that. I mean, it's a, you know, often that's the point that a conservative starts to realise there's an issue and somebody can't work anymore. So um, a huge, huge issue. And I, I, I totally agree. It's it's a time bomb coming down the track. Do we have a sense of why more children are getting the EHCPs? Is it is it knock-on effects of austerity? Is it knock-on effects from the pandemic? Uh, is it parents being more aware um, of particular conditions and applying as a result? And, you know, previously these children wouldn't have had the help that they needed. Yeah, it's, it's a combination of all of those things. So there are definitely, uh, the pandemic, I think, has highlighted needs where they might have gone unnoticed. Definitely with, with the mental health side, anxiety side, yeah, definitely that has, has played a part. But it's not only that, it is better understanding, better diagnosis, but also a massive rollback of the support services around schools like um, speech and language therapy, educational psychologists in schools who might have been able to manage all of this at a lower level without requiring, you know, speci- specific certificates diagnosing conditions. Um, but the, po- the point is, whenever it comes to court, it's always a yes. So it, it, these children, are, it's not that there isn't a problem. The problem is palpable. It's definitely there. Seth, how important has education been in recent elections? Does it sway votes? It does, but usually when there's a strong feeling that it's been neglected and put on the back burner for a while. Um, You saw that most notably in 1997 being fought as an education, education, education election. Um, I think that we've seen quite a lot of initiatives over the last 14 years, some of which have been popular, many of which have not. Um, And I think that there is very much an appetite for change, as the discussion here reflects. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. How have we been taking our minds off Labour's spending plans this week? Seth, what have you got to recommend for us? I went to Sudbury in Suffolk, where there's a fantastic exhibition of, uh, I've got the catalogue here, it's the art of James Gilray. I'm, I'm obsessed with Gilray, who's the sort of founder of the whole political cartoon of the late 18th, early 19th century. It's really savage, visceral stuff, very vulgar, fantastic. Um, and it's being held at uh, Gainsborough's house. So not only is the exhibition a really, really good thing, but the surprise for me was how interesting Thomas Gainsborough's house was, because it's where he grew up. And you, you learn a lot about how he uses light, how he observes life from his window. Um, it, it's really worth seeing just the museum in its own right. Well, I will try and make it to Sudbury. It's not the easiest place to get to, is it? It's running to March the 10th. It, uh, oh, got you time. Can. Got time. Um, Hannah, how about you? Well, I have been watching the Netflix adaptation of One Day. I wasn't sure I was going to watch this. I loved the book, absolutely adored it, found it inspiring in a lot of ways. Um, and the film of it, obviously, was absolute dross. I didn't watch it, but I knew it would be so, and I read the reviews. So I was just really concerned about any other attempt to uh, turn into a you know a, a screen version of this thing, which is such an utterly beautiful novel. However, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I watched it because I tweeted about my concern about it, and David Nichols himself replied saying, wow. "I promise you, it's worth watching." And I thought, well, there you go. There's an endorsement. So, oh, it perfectly reflects the tone and cadence of the novel. It brings to life the 1990s in the same way as that novel did, which I would say is one of two I've ever read that actually captures that decade realistically. The characterization is brilliant. Uh, If you liked the book, you're going to love it. Um, I started watching it a couple of days ago. I've already watched eight episodes. (laughs) It's very binge-worthy. And how about you, Ros? 
Well, I, I, I did not enjoy the book. I have to say, I just oh, couldn't no, get into it. Ross. Oh but my goodness! I have watched the first minute on Netflix, and I thought, yeah, I want to watch this. So yeah, it's what... next in my queue now that I finished Colin from Accounts, which I absolutely loved. And I realised, like everything, I'm always many months behind on TV. So you know, um... I think you should try and reread it before you watch it, though. But to answer your question properly, Seth, um, I have I did actually go to the cinema last week in a particularly God I can't write anything this morning moment, um, and I saw the end we start from, which has you know possibly the worst title of a movie I've ever come across. I just can't I, can't, I had to actually write down what the what the title was because I it won't stick in my mind. But uh, it's uh, starring uh, Jodie Comer as a pregnant woman who is uh, trapped in an enormous biblical style flood due to the climate emergency and has to basically give birth in this flood and then wander around England um, uh, trying to support her baby while people get killed and there are uh, you know, refugee camps and it's all it's it's all very apocalyptic uh, although the ending is, is a bit more uplifting but it's it's a very good piece of work but yeah the title is dreadful but and don't the, go this, with the title this, this is escaping politics how <laughs> oh there's no politics in it because politics is broken down right it's all just it's all atavistic you know dog eat dog by this time yeah yeah <laughs> And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. And Seth. Thank you. And thanks to this week's guest, Charlotte, too. Thank you. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Thursday for our backers and Friday morning for everyone else. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Roz Taylor with Seth Tebow, Hannah Fern and guest Charlotte Santry. It was produced by Chris Jones, edited by Robin Leeburn, with art by Jim Parrott, and video production by Mike Bollin and Kieran Leslie. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and oh God, what now? It was a Podmasters production.